Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. I'll be your host, Bonnie, and I'm joined with my co-host, Denny. Welcome to MRSA Podcasts. I'm really excited for today's episode. We're joined today by Dr. Coombs, the chair of the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. He received his Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry in 1997 and his PhD in Medical Sciences in 2002 from McMaster. In 2006, Dr. Coombs joined the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences and established an active research program in infectious disease at the Coombs Lab. The lab's major focus is on enteric bacteria associated with acute and chronic human diseases, including Crohn's disease. He is the past recipient of the CIHR New Investigator Award, the Scientific Merit Award from the Public Health Agency of Canada, and the Fisher Scientific Prize. In 2010, Dr. Coombs was inducted into Canada's top 40 under 40, and in 2016, received the title of University Scholar. So welcome today, Dr. Coombs. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Dr. Coombs, would you give us a brief overview of the fields of research explored at the Coombs Lab? Sure. Um, So my group is interested in all things uh, microbes. So we're interested in little microscopic bacteria that make us sick um, and their role in both acute and chronic infections. So, you know, acute infections being, um, you know, what most people are familiar with in terms of bacterial infectious disease, enteric pathogens, foodborne uh, infections, uh, but also bacteria that have not typically been associated with uh, disease before, um, for example, Crohn's disease, and we're becoming more and more aware that uh, inflammatory bowel diseases have a major driver in the microbes uh, in our gut. And so we're very interested in, in trying to sort of root out what those bacteria are and how they make us sick, and, and in some cases, uh, what we can do about it to try and get rid of them. As a postdoctoral fellow, you studied the pathogenicity of Salmonella enterica specifically, which is an enteric bacteria uh, under the guidance of Dr. Brett Finley. Uh, Can you briefly describe the findings on the mechanisms and virulence factors through which Salmonella enterica enters macrophages to survive and replicate? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a big question. There's a whole field of research on this, but, um, you know, I I took out a, carved out a little slice of this research in my postdoc. when I was doing my postdoc, I was very interested in how enteric pathogens like Salmonella typhimurium rewire their gene expression when they get inside a host. Um, enteric pathogens are kind of interesting because they occupy various different places. So they can be outside the body, they can be associated with food, they can be associated with water, they can be associated with um, other types of mammals, um, zoonotic transmission is really important for foodborne pathogens, for example. So we find them in livestock. And in mostly all of those other locations, they don't make the animals sick. And yet when they get inside us, they make us exquisitely sick. And so I became curious and interested to know what is it about us as humans that signal to the bacteria that they have to do something different. They have to adopt a different kind of lifestyle. And the lifestyle is, is a pathogenic one with us. And so I started understanding and trying to research uh, bacterial gene expression. So I was very interested to understand how Salmonella rewires its entire gene expression program when it gets inside cells. Salmonella is a cool bacteria because the way it causes disease in us is by commandeering host cells. So we call it an intracellular pathogen meaning it actually gets inside cells of our body and evades our natural defenses, our innate immune system, and can use our own host cells kind of as a, as a safe haven in a way to replicate. And in order to do that, it has to express genes which it doesn't normally express outside the body. And so using techniques like microarray, I mean, micro, nobody does microarrays anymore, but you know, back in 20 years ago, when I was doing my postdoc, microarrays were kind of all the rage. Um, You know, now we do more fancy things like RNA sequencing, but that didn't exist back then. Um, So we did things like microarray technology to look at all of the genes expressed in salmonella at once. 
uh, in the context of, of you know, what happens in a test tube versus what happens when it infects a macrophage. Um, and I did also some animal work in, in preclinical animal models in, in mice to try and understand and extrapolate those findings uh, to more something that would resemble uh, you know, a real world infection. And so in doing so, we figured out that yes, indeed Salmonella does rewire its, its gene expression quite considerably. Um, the genes that get expressed when it invades a host cell are involved in the things I talked about earlier, like evading our host defenses. And one of the main prominent ways that Salmonella evades our host defenses is by expressing a bacterial secretion system called a type three secretion system, which is a little microscopic, you know, syringe, like a needle and in, in syringe, which can poke holes into host cell membranes and inject bacterial proteins into host cells. And we call that a type three secretion system. And I studied that system in my postdoctoral fellowship. And in particular in that system, I was interested in what those proteins are, which get injected through the type three secretion like syringe into host cells, because those are the bacterial proteins that are involved in basically shutting down host cell immunity and allowing the bacteria to create this sort of safe place to replicate inside our own host cells. And the reason I was thinking about that system and, and what those bacterial effector proteins were, you know, thinking kind of a couple of steps ahead is if you could understand what those proteins were, which shut down the host immune system and, and blocked innate immunity, which is designed to keep us healthy, maybe you could figure out ways to sort of turn it on its head and actually block those bacterial proteins, which are involved in immune evasion. So if you know what the proteins are involved in immune evasion, maybe you could think of, you could come up with an inhibitor to those proteins. If they're enzymes, for example, maybe you could design a, uh, or do a screen to come up with an enzyme inhibitor, um, or other ways to try and block the ability of the bacteria to, um, commandeer our host cells. And so that's kind of, I didn't do any of that stuff in my postdoc, but that has kind of carried on a little bit in my own lab at McMaster. Um, and then one of the spin-offs, which quite honestly, I wasn't really thinking too hard about when I went in my postdoc, but we got pretty serious about this when I started my own lab at McMaster, was to try and figure out how did the bacteria actually know that they're, they've invaded into a host cell? How do they know they're in a human? How do they know they're in a macrophage? How do they know they're inside an epithelial cell, for example? Because that is what triggers them to reprogram their gene expression. And so we got very interested to understand what are the cues that the bacteria use to, to basically figure out where they are because they don't have sensory systems like you and I do. They have none of the similar kinds of systems like you and I do to try and figure out where they are. And so how do they figure out where they are? And that's kind of another sort of branch of the lab that we've been working on pretty hard over the last little while is to, is to understand bacterial sensory systems and what those cues are that those sensory systems detect in order for the bacteria to compute where they are and what they need to do. Well, that was super cool. Um, well, bringing it back to our work, your work on animals, in one of your most cited research papers, you talked about the development of a novel calf ileal loop model to study salmonella serotypes that cause disease in the intestinal tract. What were the limitations of using the ligated ileal loop model in cattle when studying the salmonella serotypes, and how were they overcome with the design of a novel calf ileal loop model? Yeah, so that's, boy, that's ancient history. That's going way back. Um, <laughs> This was, a, so I remember this study very well because um, I was a postdoc at the time working in Vancouver. And I don't know if any of your, you or your listeners have ever spent any time in Vancouver in the wintertime, but if you have, bring your Gore-Tex because it rains all the time. Mm. Um, and so I was stuck in, in the middle of a Vancouver winter having had it rained for about 45 straight days. And I got invited to go to the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization or VEDO. Uh, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, um, which in February is minus 25, but very, very sunny. So I was delighted to be able to go there. Um, and the reason I wanted to go there is, is for, you know, 
because the, of the limitations, you, you talked about limitations of that model, but the reason I wanted to go there and work with the folks at Vito is because they had alternative animal models that would allow us to overcome some of the problems I was having with our mouse-based research. So, you know, animal models are simply that, they're models, mice are not humans and, and, and neither are cattle, but, you know, sometimes we need to bring in new animal models in order to answer certain questions. And one of the questions I was trying to answer in mice was how do I, how do I synchronize the bacterial infection so that I could actually study a more homogeneous bacterial population? And so if you infect a mouse with salmonella, you can basically do it two ways. You can infect it orally, in which case the bacterial inoculum goes through the stomach and then enters the small intestine and then eventually uh, enters the large intestine. And you can imagine that is not a good way to synchronize an infection because you have bacteria spanning all different places in the GI tract. Alternatively, what you could do is is what you can do in a large animal model, which is create an ileal loop. And so you can expose the ileum in an animal and create um, what we call a loop. And you can sort of ligate off two areas and you can create a little pouch in which you could inject bacteria directly into. And if you can do that, obviously you can synchronize the bacterial infection really well because you know exactly where they're going and how much you're putting in and they're going to the same, sp the same place. And then you can use um, that synchronized infection to answer the questions you're interested in. Obviously the limitation of that model is it's, it's tedious and you can't use a lot of animals. Not only for ethical reasons, we don't wanna use a lot of large animals in our research, but also they're extremely expensive. And so you are limited to the number of animals you can use, but um, because we can do, we can sort of tailor this experimental setup to answer the question we really wanna answer, we actually don't need a lot of animals in order to do that kind of experiment. And so that's why it was, it was quite helpful in that instance. Okay, that's really interesting. We wanted to uh, bring it in back to, um, back to AIEC. And you know that's one of the primary focuses of your recent research is AIEC. Uh, you even recently did an interview on it uh, and uh, its role in Crohn's disease. So would you be able to give our audience just a, a brief explanation on the genetic and microbiological factors that contribute to Crohn's disease and what the hypothesized role of AIEC is in Crohn's disease pathology? Sure. So I mean, for your listeners, I mean, Crohn's disease is a type of inflammatory bowel disease in which you have essentially uncontrolled inflammation in a certain location in your GI tract. Crohn's disease can occur anywhere along the GI tract in humans. It tends to occur most frequently in the ileum, which is the sort of the lower part of the small intestine, where your small intestine meets your, meets your large intestine, your colon. Um, and it's a lifelong disease and there's currently no cure. I mean, we're very interested in it because Canada has one of the highest rates of Crohn's disease in the world. Uh, we're up there in the top five, um, a very unenviable position to be in, in terms of statistic, but you know, that's where we are and we're trying to hard to understand what we can do about that and trying to understand the root causes and, and new treatments and, and all kinds of things. I would say in the last, well, I, let, me, let me preface this by saying, if you try to, if you read the literature on what causes Crohn's disease, you'll be, and you're looking for a reason, you'll be disappointed because there is essentially no sort of generally accepted cause of Crohn's disease. It tends to be a constellation of risk factors that when exposed in, the, in a certain individual who might be predisposed to um, Crohn's disease through genetics, for example, um, manifest as, as disease. And so one person's Crohn's is quite, can be quite different than another person's. It's not a, it's not, you know, what we would typically think of as a homogeneous disease. It's very diverse. And I, I would, you know, potentially argue that, you know, individuals with Crohn's disease, um, don't share a lot of commonality. I mean, they, the disease presentation is quite similar, but the reasons behind why they got there could be quite different. Um, genetics does play a role in Crohn's disease for sure. There's been lots of interesting studies on twins who, uh, looking at the concordance rate of Crohn's and twins, but even in, even in identical twins, 
the the concordance rate of disease is only about like it's between 25 and 40 percent so sure genetics plays a big role but it's it obviously doesn't answer all of the the questions because you can have one twin who has the disease and an identical twin who doesn't so why is that um we like to think that there are uh exposures which create risk um, in order to in order for someone to develop Crohn's disease and some of those risks have been well described in the literature um, including things like antibiotic use um, or other use of xenobiotics um, enteric infections uh, incidentally so foodborne pathogens like salmonella like we've been talking about and pathogenic e coli and campylobacter jejuni which all cause acute uh, uh, infectious gastroenteritis are themselves risk factors for developing Crohn's later in life, which is quite interesting and not really well understood, although we've worked on it in the lab a little bit. Um, diet plays a role, genetics plays a role, all of these things. And, and one of the most prominent things that have sort of, I would say, come to the forefront in the microbiome era is this idea that microbes play a massive role in disease expression. So if you take away the microbes, you don't have disease. And so therefore the microbes are involved somehow. And attention has sort of shifted towards understanding, can we identify the, the culprit? Like, is it, is it one culprit? And if so, can we identify it? And what can we do about it? And so my lab has been very interested in one potential culprit in Crohn's disease, the so-called AIC, which stands for adherent invasive E. coli. And these are a very unusual type of E. coli that is quite unlike the E. coli that most people have in their GI tract. Most people have E. coli in their GI tract, although it's very low abundance, like less than one or 0.5% of the microbes in your gut. But AIC are quite different. And they were discovered back in the late 1990s by a woman called Arlette Daifrey-Michaud in France, who was a gastroenterologist. Um, unfortunately, she passed away about four, three or four or five years ago. I can't remember, but it was quite sudden. Um, but she was the first person to describe AIC in studying Crohn's patients and taking biopsy samples back to the lab and looking at what kind of bacteria are there. And in doing so, she found these weird bacteria, which at the time they didn't know what they were, um, but they seemed to be attached to the epithelial lining of the gut tissue. And in some cases, when you look at them under a transmission electron microscope, and so you, you, know, you can cut a slice open and actually look at what's inside the cells, they found these bacteria inside epithelial cells as well from the biopsy samples. And in doing a bit more work, they eventually figured out that they were E. coli, but they were not the, you know, the typical commensal E. coli that we all have. They weren't like pathogenic E. coli, like enterohemorrhagic E. coli, or enteropathogenic E. coli, urinary pathogenic E. coli. They weren't any of the known pathogenic variants of E. coli. And so they essentially had to find a new type of pathovar of E. coli, which they dubbed adherent invasive E. coli, or AIC for short, to describe its behavior and phenotype on cells. And a whole bunch of research has obviously taken place since then. And my group got interested in AIC quite a, quite a long time ago now. Um, tackling it really from a microbiological point of view. I mean, we're microbiologists first and foremost. And so we're interested in understanding how AIC interacts with host cells. Similar kinds of questions in a way to salmonella. Like how does it get inside cells? How does it evade our immune system? Why is it pro-inflammatory in the gut? Can we come up with animal models so we can study it and figure out how it works? And if we can, can we do anything about it? Can we, can we eradicate it? Does that help um, uh, the disease course in any way? And so we've been working hard on this in the lab, um, mainly in preclinical mouse models, which have uh, allowed us to answer some quite complex questions. So how does AIEC differ in individuals with Crohn's versus healthy individuals? Um, so AICs are um, quite unusual in that they have, they tend to have genes which commensal E. coli don't have. So 
just like I described with salmonella, they have this type three secretion system, which allows them to get inside cells and, and, and commandeer the host cell. AIC also have other kinds of genes, which allow them to do things which their commensal counterparts can't do. They don't have a type three secretion system, so they're quite different than salmonella, but they have things like uh, antibiotic resistance genes, which obviously allow them to evade treatment if, if uh, someone is put on antibiotics. Um, they have genes which allow them to evade our natural host defenses, like our, our body's natural antibiotics, like antimicrobial peptides, which are, are short cationic peptides that many cell types of our body make in order to kill bacterial cells. And so AICs tend to have enzymes which can chop up antimicrobial peptides to allow them to resist that host defense mechanism. Um, they have a whole bunch of other metabolic capacity that commensal E. coli don't have, which allows them to outcompete commensal microbes in the gut just because they can, they can do more stuff with a limited number of metabolites um, and all kinds of things. And so it's, they're quite different um, genetically. It's easy to tell them apart from commensal E. coli just by sequencing the genome. That being said, if you sequence a genome of E. coli from a Crohn's patient, you can't tell just by looking at the genome whether it's AIC or not. So that's one of the limitations of this field at the moment is we don't have you know, a definitive genetic signature of AIC. You can't just sequence something and say, aha, it's AIC. You have to sequence it and then also do a bunch of phenotypic tests in the lab to determine and categorize it as AIC. On a different note, your team explored how psychological stress could decrease mucosal immunity, especially specifically for IL-22 dependent host defenses against AIEC and other enteric bacteria in urine models. Would you be able to touch upon some of the findings that arose from this research? Yeah, sure. This was one of our most recent studies that we just published, um, mm -hmm. which was a massive effort from a grad student in my lab and a postdoc in my lab. Um, occupied the better part of two years of their life, um, day in and day out. So we were interested in this, in this um, observation that in Crohn's patients who are in remission, meaning their disease is under control, usually by medicate, through medication, oftentimes they will come out of remission and have a relapse. And when they do, and they visit their, their doctor, oftentimes they'll describe um, you know, feelings of exposure to psychological stress in the days or weeks leading up to their relapse. And we got interested to try and figure out what, what might be going on there. And so we, and because we had this AIC model in mice, we thought, and we can stress mice, we can expose them to psychological stress. We thought this might be a good um, opportunity for us to look at this in a bit more depth. And so we set up our AIC colonization model where we colonize mice with adherent invasive E. coli, which are isolates from, that we take from Crohn's patients and put them back into mice. And those mice get colonized with AIC and we can track where it goes and we can measure it in the gut and all kinds of things. And then we can expose those mice to psychological stress and ask, well, what happens to AIC and other components of the microbiome? And we were quite surprised actually when we first did this experiment because the, when, we, when we stress mice and when we expose mice to psychological stress that are also colonized with AIC, it's quite striking that the AIC burden in the gut goes way up in, in response to stress. And so you stress mice, the AIC burden increases by several orders of magnitude in the gut in a very short period of time, like in less than 24 hours, it will go up like hundred to a thousand times greater in the gut. And then when you release the mice from stress and put them back into their home cages and let them, you know, run around for another day, that AIC burden returns back to baseline. And so you can sort of oscillate the AIC levels high and low, high and low, just by exposing the mice to stress. And so obviously there was something going on there and through a lot of work, um, the guys figured out that 
the reason AIC burden goes up so high during stress is because the stress actually causes a depletion of a key immune cell in the gut that's involved in post-protection. And this key immune cell or population of cells makes an important signaling molecule or cytokine in the gut called IL-22, which is involved in lots of functions in the gut, mainly gut homeostasis. So it's involved in signaling to the epithelium to repair uh, epithelial damage. It's involved in signaling to the epithelium to make antimicrobial peptides, which are these our, our body's natural post-defense molecules and all kinds of other things. And so if you don't have it, the epithelium can't do those important functions and it's compromised, allowing bacteria from the lumen of the gut to breach the epithelial barrier, go to places where they're not supposed to go, cause more inflammation, and then the cycle sort of propagates from there. And so that was the major finding of that study is that psychological stress um, reduces host protection against these Crohn's-associated E. coli through this immune defect of loss of IL-22 producing cells. And the cool thing about it is you can fix it. So you can, you can actually correct this problem just by giving the mice, even if they're exposed to stress, if you provide them with IL-22, you can correct the problem. And so you restore all of those um, post-defense functions of the, of the gut epithelium and AIC expansion doesn't occur. I was just wondering what, uh, if you had to, I guess, uh, recreate that study, uh, what would you, how would you model it in a different way? Like without using mice, would you model it? Like what kind of, what kind of model would you use to kind of simulate um, human uh, reaction to psychological well, stress? I mean, I guess the, the best, the best way to do it, if you're not going to use a preclinical type model in mice is to, is to do it in humans. And that would be to use human subjects who are Crohn's patients. You'd have to get controls. You'd have to figure out a way to standardize the level of stress that one is experiencing, which is, I think is tricky because people experience stress in different ways. And also sources of stress can be different. Like there can be, I mean, all kinds of stress, exam stress that you're very familiar with. There can be financial stress, relationship stress. It's all very different. And, and, the, and, the, and, you know, people that are exposed to the same kinds of stressors might experience it to different magnitudes. So what's, what might stress me out terribly might not bother you too much and vice versa. So that's the tricky part about doing this kind of thing in humans is that it's hard to standardize the stress exposure and, and how people interpret it. Um, but I think with enough, obviously with enough subjects, you might be able to do it and try and look at biomarkers of uh, like we've identified in the study, looking at um, potentially IL-22 in, in serum, if you can get at, if you can get those samples, um, microbiome samples from, you know, using a non-invasive procedure, you could look at microbiome and various other things. So it's, it's, it's totally doable. Um, it's not something my group has done. <clears throat> we've, we've tended to um, work in the preclinical kind of setting and produce, try to produce high quality results and, and data that will allow us to then work with partners who are involved in more translational kinds of research, like pharmaceutical company partners who are interested in drug discovery and, and, and other kinds of folks. How could this alter treatment and therapies for Crohn's disease patients? Well, there are clinical trials going on right now with IL-22 treatment, and those have not mm -hmm. read out yet, but they're coming. Um, you know, I think this could be a potential, I mean, the more I think about what we've found, the more I think that <clears throat> The, you know, the, the findings could be probably most extrapolated to uh, Crohn's patients who are in remission, who are at risk of relapse, either because their, met, their primary medication is maybe not working as well as it used to. And so they're kind of on the fringe between healthy and, and, and sick again, or uh, Crohn's patients who are in remission, who do experience a, you know, a, a life episode, which 
you know, leads to psychological stress, either acutely or, or chronically, um, it could be an intervention that prevents them from relapsing. And that might be a very, very useful kind of approach. If you can prevent someone, if you can keep them in remission and feeling generally well and healthy, I mean, that's really the goal. With a disease like Crohn's, which there's no sort of cure, I mean, the goal at that point is, is potentially to find new cures, which is really tricky. Um, you know, secondarily, you could try and find new medicines, which, which you know, allow people to, to stay healthy for a longer period of time and keep them healthy. So keep them in remission. And if it's a way to keep people in remission, uh, that would be, I think, a, an interesting angle. It's almost similar to cystic fibrosis. Right. Additionally to that, um, we were wondering about uh, whether this research on, um, on psychological stress could offer an explanation as to why inflammatory bowel diseases have become increasingly prevalent in the general population. As you said, in Canada, uh, it's, it's the, like, we're leading uh, with like with the amount of people who have Crohn's disease in the general population? I mean, it's certainly one thing to consider. If you look at the rates of Crohn's in Canada and other developed nations over the last 50 years, they've, they have gone up um, at a pace which, you know, can't really account, you, you can't really account for it through host genetics. There just hasn't been a lot enough you know, reproduction in that time frame to, 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 to explain it away by host genetic susceptibility. So there has to be something else. And so people have looked really hard at what, you know, what, what, what it could be. Diet comes up a lot. Um, food additives and diets, for example, have changed dramatically and the kinds of food additives and preservatives that get put in food now is quite different than it was 50 years ago. Um, exposure to to conventional medicines like antibiotics is something that comes up quite a bit as well. Cause you know, we tend to be in developed nations. We tend to be in love with our antibiotics and, you know, we over prescribe them and we throw them in our animal feed and it's in livestock, even in, pro, in a prophylactic kind of way, animals that aren't even sick get loaded up with antibiotics. So there's antibiotics everywhere and our exposure to them is crazy, crazy high. Um, and so that, you know, people have looked at this as well and trying to, to try and understand if, if that kind of exposure is involved in increased rates of Crohn's over the last 50 years. I mean, my instinct says it probably does play a role. My instinct says all of those things probably play a role. And it's trying to understand how those risk factors interact with one another is the, is the difficult challenge. You can't avoid antibiotics because if you're sick and you have a bacterial infection, of course, antibiotics are going to help you. That's what they're there for. So it's, it's difficult to avoid them completely. The, I think the, the thing we have to understand is, is, is appropriate use, timing of use, dosing maybe is something that people could look at, um, uh, and various other things. That's like a perfect segue into like my next question. Um, so bringing it back to antibiotic resistance, how does the use of antibiotics, both in pediatric and adult sense? settings increase the risk of developing Crohn's disease? Specifically, how does the use of antibiotics alter the behavior of the gut microbiota? Yeah, that's the, that's the $20,000 question, which we don't quite have the answer to. Um, I mean, there's been really interesting stuff done in, in, with antibiotic use, kind of like in the first, first five years of life, you know, people have done studies looking at the number of prescriptions to kids in the first five years of life and track them over time, longitudinal studies to ask, you know, do they develop more kinds of disease? And, you know, if you believe the literature, yeah, they do. They get more Crohn's disease and they get more things like asthma and um, allergy and all kinds of things. And so this whole, you know, branch of microbiology, which is essentially called the microbiome research, and the understanding and the appreciation that the gut, the, the microbes in our gut actually are <clears throat> not just passive passengers. They actually do stuff to keep us healthy um, over our lifespan uh, is it makes it all the more reason to try and understand how to preserve them and how to protect the, our gut microbes. And, and, you know, antibiotics are the, one of the worst things for them because they, their antibiotics kill bacteria, um, in a way that uh, doesn't discriminate. They kill all kinds of bacteria, not just the ones that are making you sick. So they just 
you know, in a way, what we're trying to understand is if you could, if you could figure out what the disease causing bacteria are, instead of treating with broad spectrum antibiotics, which kill everything, could you come up with more narrow spectrum antibiotics to try and correct that problem? There's been some super cool epidemiological research that involves like tens of thousands of patients. Um, a lot of this is done in Europe where electronic health records are a little bit more advanced than us. So you can do these, these database surveys a bit more easier. Um, but people have looked at antibiotic prescribing and, and also um, uh, the rates of um, acute infectious gastroenteritis like food poisoning, which in most cases sometimes leads to antibiotic use because people get sick with the bacterial infection and first thing the doctor wants to do is put you on an antibiotic. So it might indirectly be involved in antibiotic use. Um, but yeah, these studies have borne out time and time again that, that um, you know, alteration of the gut microbiome in, in a profound way, either by antibiotic use or by uh, infection with a, a foodborne pathogen, which does itself profoundly change the makeup of the gut microbiome, um, leads to long-term health risks which is super interesting because you think, well, all right, for an antibiotic, a course of antibiotics, like what are you on them for at most, like a week, maybe take them like once a day, twice a day for a week, and then you're done. Um, food, food, food poisoning. I mean, I hope your listeners never experience it, but I have several times in my life, especially while traveling in, you know, different countries. Um, it's very unpleasant, uh, you know, at most you're going to feel crummy for about a week, but then you do get better. Your, your body reacts and it does what it's supposed to do. And it, you know, it restores balance and gets rid of the bacteria and you feel okay. But these studies that I'm, uh, the epidemiological studies indicate that actually those, those kinds of acute events that last for like a week or two weeks at most increase your risk of developing Crohn's disease out like 10 years, which is really interesting because the thing that made you sick in the first place is long gone, obviously. And yet you, your, your risk of disease, uh, of Crohn's disease persists for a decade, uh, which is really interesting. And so we don't, I mean, we don't really understand this at all. Um, my, my, my instinct is that probably those kinds of um, uh, things which profoundly disrupt your gut microbiome, like antibiotic use or, or enteric infection kind of leads to a clearinghouse of all the good microbes. And then what comes back afterwards is probably, you know, it's, it's largely probably what was there before, but there could be, you know, the, the complex community of bacteria that gets set up afterwards might not be identical to what was there before. And maybe those kind of um, sort of massive, you know, large scale, perturbations of the gut lead to a, a new bacterial community, which might be slightly more pro-inflammatory. It might be slightly less protective against other kinds of insults. It might be more reactive to certain components of the diet that didn't bother you before, but now they do. Um, we don't really know. I mean, it's, it's kind of like cutting edge of what we really understand, but I think it's a really important area of research. Yeah, it, it uh, definitely sounds like an important area of research, but it also sounds like there are a lot of unanswered questions in the field of, of uh, Crohn's disease and AIEC. Uh, what other gaps do you feel like uh, need to be explored in, in the field of inflammatory bowel disease in general or in the field of enteric uh, bacterial infections? I mean, lots, it's going to keep me in business for, you know, <laughs> quite a few years to come, I'm sure. But um, I mean, in our own research, kind of some of the things that we're starting to think about and work on now and follow up is in our AIC research, we're interested to try and figure out how, or I guess, how and, and where does AIC really set up shop in the GI tract? So, you know, we know that Crohn's disease often manifests in the ileum. So we're interested to try and understand, well, if, what does AIC do? What are, what's it doing in the ileum? So can we, can we use some of the new, newer technologies like RNA sequencing, transposon insertion sequencing, 
and various other omics kind of technologies in our mouse model to, to understand what does it take for AIC to live in the ileum, for example? What genes is it expressing? How is it evading our immune system? Because there's a, a pretty robust immune system all throughout our gut, and yet it's there and it's replicating and it's expanding. So it must be hiding or evading our immune system somehow. How is it doing that? Um, and so those are some of the questions we're addressing right now in the lab. Um, and also then comparing that to AIC growing elsewhere in the GI tract. So if you look at, for example, if you were to try and understand the gene expression, what genes are being expressed by AIC in the ileum in the small intestine versus the colon? And are they different? And the reason I think this is important <clears throat> is because the genes which get expressed obviously get turned into proteins and those proteins become targets for antibiotic therapy. And so if you're trying to come up with a precision antibiotic that might be targeting AIC specifically, you need to know what it's expressing because you need to know what the targets are. And it's important to know that your target that you're trying to hit in the bacteria is expressed regardless of where it is. So if you came up with a really cool antibiotic that only eradicated AIC in the colon, but it allowed it to grow just fine in the ileum, that wouldn't be a very good, wouldn't be very clinically useful. And so we're trying to understand this. We're trying to understand, you know, gene dispensability patterns of AIC in the gut. Um, and it's not just along the length of the GI tract. Obviously, the, the GI tract is, has a length element to it, but it's also got another axis. It's got thickness. It's got layers. It's got the epithelium. It's got the lamina propria. It's got a muscle layer. And when we colonize mice with AIC and section those areas and look for AIC and ask, where, where is it? It's actually throughout the thickness of the of the the, um, the gut wall. We can find AIC growing in biofilms on the surface of the epithelial surface. We can find it inside goblet cells, which are trying to make mucus to protect the epithelial barrier. We can find it in in you know deep layers, like even in the muscle layer. And so we're trying to use uh, things like laser capture and microdissection to sort of zero in on all of these different biogeographical locations and ask what's AIC expressing and what's it doing in those locations. So that's kind of the sort of the next, some of the next things we're doing um, on AIC. And also on the, on the partnership side, <clears throat> we're working with several pharmaceutical companies at the moment who are very interested in microbiome targeting therapeutics in IBD. So we have pretty good anti-inflammatories and immune targeting treatments in Crohn's. They have their problems, but they're, they're very good medicines by and large. But I think the microbiome is like this next holy grail in Crohn's disease that nobody has yet figured out how to target. And the anti-inflammatories used in Crohn's disease are great, but they don't, they don't address the root cause of the inflammation. They just suppress the inflammation so that you can restore health, but it doesn't turn off the, the source of the inflammation. So you constantly have this immune activation and then the drugs are trying to suppress it. But if you could figure out what's causing the inflammation, and we think the microbes in the GI tract play a prominent role, they might not be the only role, but they, I think they definitely play a, a significant role. If you could turn off that source as well as dampen the immune system in sort of a dual action kind of treatment, I think that could have tremendous value. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, on that note, what advice would you have for undergraduates who perhaps are interested in applying to research in your lab or are interested in pursuing the field of research in enteric diseases, um, epidemiology? I mean, my advice to anyone really who's interested in getting into research and science is to just follow your passions. And because science is really hard and research is really hard. And I mean, that's, and I tell my kids this constantly is, is, is don't be afraid of hard things because doing hard things is really how you grow and advance as a person. Um, and it's where the discoveries are made. So but, but because it's hard and because it requires a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of failure in research. Anyone who spends any of your listeners who have spent any time in a research lab before will know that it doesn't always work. It doesn't work the way that you read it in the papers all the time. The paper is just the culmination of a lot of years and tears and 
failed experiments and all kinds of things to make, you know, eventually, you know, to, to eventually get it to work. And so if you're passionate about it, the passion, your internal drive and your internal motivation and your internal passion can help you weather those days in the lab where all your experiments are not working and things are tricky. If you're not in love with the science to begin with, it makes those days really hard to weather. Um, so that's my first advice is just to, you know, do a gut check, pardon the pun, <clears throat> but, you know, ask yourself, what kind of stuff do you really love? Like, do you, do you love enteric infections? And do you love trying to understand host microbe interactions and this sort of microbial warfare that's going on in us right now? And if so, just chase that down. And if it's, if it's cancer biology that you're passionate about, because, you know, you or a loved one has had cancer and that motivates you to try and find cures, then, then harness that energy and, and make it work to your advantage. Yeah. All of science is interesting to me, but obviously time is the enemy. So you have to, you got to pick something. And so if you, my advice is just to really pick something that you're passionate about um, and go from there. How, how did you, uh, how did you fall in love with, uh, with this specific field of research? Because I know you did, you did your PhD in, in medical science or uh, yeah. yes. So yeah, med, sci. med sci. Yeah. So that's, that's a more broad field. Yeah, so for my, I did get excited about this in my, during my PhD. Um, I mean, I will tell you that when I was an undergrad in biochem at Mac, up until like third year, I thought it was, I mean, I was hell bent on going to med school. I thought I was destined for med school. Like many mm -hmm. of my, many of my um, classmates were as well. Um, but then I started working in a lab in my after in the summer after my third year and I, I just I completely fell in love with working in the lab um, I loved the challenge of it I loved the 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 I loved working with my hands which I didn't know I, I didn't really realize I actually did I, I loved working with my hands um, I loved thinking about hard things and trying to solve problems and I loved the fact that you're constantly surrounded by you know people who are way smarter than you and you learn from them and and you know to me, that was just like super exciting. And then once you finally actually start doing experiments and, you know, you're, I don't know, developing a gel or developing a film or running something out and on a gel and you, you actually see something for the first time that nobody else knows. That's super cool. I mean, that feeling is pretty contagious. Oh, yeah. Um, so I kind of abandoned my med school ideas at that point because I realized um, I wasn't going to be able to get any of those things as a doctor, yeah. as, a, as a clinical doctor. Yeah. You're not the first one to, uh, to say that uh, you were a med school, like hopeful, and then something changed in, in third or fourth year or in a master's. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, I know um, the, the professor we just researched, Dr. Koenig, he's an immunology professor and he also was into medical school. He was in health sci and then he, he went the immunology research route. So everyone yeah. just, yeah, I guess, finds what they're passionate in eventually. Exactly. Well, since it's almost turning into an hour, we wanted to end with a question we have to ask for every interview. Um, what opportunities and roles do you have for undergraduates in the Coombs lab? Yeah, so we've taken all kinds of undergrads in the past. Um, so I've had the lab there for 17, almost 17 years now, and probably had well over 50 undergrads come through the lab over the years. Mainly senior thesis students um, we hire. We hire at least, you know, two to three senior thesis students every year from various programs. Uh, we've had students from biology, biochemistry, ISI, um, arts and sci, chemical biology, lots of different students from all kinds of programs. Um, co-op students, we also hire. Um, over the years, we've had a couple of co-op students come through. I've got a new co-op student coming in May. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always room for, for, you know, highly motivated undergrads to, to come to the lab and contribute to the science and, and uh, help us out. And hopefully we can help them out too. And for our listeners, do are there any requirements for the Coombs Lab as an undergraduate student? Um, I only have one requirement, which is you have to be passionate. 
And so, well, yeah, because I can't, it's something I can't teach, right? I, the, mm-hmm. I or folks in the lab can teach you techniques and how to run gels and how to, you know, do the, do the, the, you know, the, the mechanics of the experiments. What I can't do is get you out of bed in the morning and want to come to the lab. That <laughs> has to come from you. And so, if, you know, if you can check that box right away, then we're off to the races. Is there anything you look for when um, students apply to your lab? I mean, we ask, we do ask questions about what they're interested in. We ask them, you know, what what they're passionate about. Um, you know, when I'm looking at at uh, CVs and stuff, I I, you know, we're we're looking for real well rounded people too. So like we, you know, I'm interested in what you what you like to do in your spare time. Um, you know, what do you like to do when you're not in school? Um, you know, because science is hard and requires a lot of um, uh, grit, I guess, is, you know, folks who have, who have, have sort of sustained interests in something, it doesn't have to be science or science related, but just a sustained interest in something that has sort of lasted years. It's a good sign that they have the stick to itness to, to do research. Like, you know, you made it to grade eight in piano. Okay. That's, I mean, that's something that doesn't, doesn't just happen. Like that's, that's literally thousands of hours sitting at a piano doing that so you either I mean you obviously you love it and you're passionate about it and you can do something over and over again and repeat it over and over again and usually those kinds of translational mindsets are those mindsets can be translated into research that's just one example I mean it's just but there's there's lots of different things that people can be passionate about for a volunteer experience that you've you know you're not doing it just to for three months to to satisfy you know some med school application but you're you're doing it because you love it and you've done it for years. And clearly you're, you know, clearly it, it, it helps motivate you and helps sustain you in some way. And so I'm interested in hearing about that, those kinds of things. That's great advice. So thank you, Dr. Coombs for all of your time. We really appreciate your insight on the genetic and microbiological factors that contribute to Crohn's disease and antibiotic resistance in enteric bacteria. It has been such a pleasure talking with you and learning so much about your research. Well, thanks again for having me. I'm happy to do this and uh, hope your listeners found it enjoyable.